Welcome to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. In January 2020, the David and Laura Lovell Foundation convened a screening of Ernie and Joe, Crisis Cops, a documentary about police responses to mental health calls. Director Jennifer McShane follows police officers Ernie Stevens and Joe Smarrow during their daily encounters with police in crisis as members of the San Antonio Police Department's 10-person mental health unit. Ernie and Joe is currently streaming on HBO. The event took place at the Loft Cinema and featured a panel discussion including producer and director Jennifer McShane and the titular mental health peace officer Joe Smarrow. Local panelists include moderator Christina Rossetti, Dr. Richard Rhodes, chief psychiatrist of the Banner UMC Crisis Response Center, Judy Kowalik of the National Alliance on Mental Illness of Southern Arizona, or NAMI, Sabrina Taylor, the Phoenix Police Department's Crisis Intervention Team Coordinator, and Jason Winsky, Supervisor of the Tucson Police Department Mental Health Support Team. The Tucson-based David and Laura Lovell Foundation helped underwrite the production of the documentary and sponsor the local screening. Up first on 30 Minutes, David and Laura Lovell Foundation Executive Director John Amoroso provides an introduction, followed by audio from the Ernie and Joe trailer. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is John Amoroso. I'm the executive director of the David and Laura Lovell Foundation, and we are the sponsor of today's event. And I want to welcome you all to a special screening of Ernie and Joe Crisis Cops, followed by a panel discussion with director Jennifer McShane and film subject officer Joe Smarrow of the San Antonio Police Department and a panel of local law enforcement and mental health experts. We're proud to have funded this film and believe strongly in its message of hope. We're fortunate here in Tucson to have the Tucson Police Mental Health Support Team, the Crisis Response Center, a justice system, and a mental health community that cooperate together as they work to decriminalize mental illness. We encourage more of that work and wish that all communities across Arizona and beyond would explore and adopt effective models for responding to people in mental health crisis. I want to thank our founders, David and Laura Lovell, who fought to reduce stigma and improve treatment for people with mental illness for decades before forming our foundation. Uh, I also want to recognize uh, the uh, foundation's board of directors, including our board president, Ann Lovell, and the rest of our trustees and advisors who are here today with us from across the country. So thank you all for attending and being a part of this. And without any further ado, we present to you Ernie and Joe, Crisis Cops. Can I over over one EMS is going to be out with them. I'm being told that she is going to be on that bridge. Where is she at? She's sitting on the rail here. No one calls us to give us good news. They call us because something bad is happening, and so they're in a crisis. Are you okay? We just have a saying in law enforcement, ask, tell, make. I'm going to ask you to do it, I'm going to tell you to do it, and I'm going to make you do it. On average, in a police academy in this country, they spend 60 hours or more learning how to shoot a gun, and they spend eight on mental health and communication. We need to shift that. 
He is now feeling suicidal and homicidal. Your mom said that you haven't been on medication. They found Mel who was trying to commit suicide. Are you hearing voices right now? Yes. What are they saying to you? No, no. Has anyone here, while you're at a work capacity, told someone, I'm scared? As human beings, we have to be connected. <laughs> I unplug a lamp, it don't work. Are you OK? I promise you I can help you. You might be broken, but you're fixable. If it takes me all day long to convince them that we're not going to hurt them and they're going to come with us. How you doing? You OK? I'll take all day long. Oh, no, no, this is my partner, Joe. My name's Ernie. Well, to me, this <laughs> exemplifies how interaction with law enforcement can be the beginning of healing and recovery for people experiencing a mental health crisis. So bravo to all of you. Good afternoon, my name's Christina Rossetti, and I'll be fielding your questions. So Jennifer, would you like to start? Just a brief introductions. Sure, hi, I just wanna thank you all for coming. Um, you know, I made the film so it would be seen, so I'm really, really pleased you're all here on a rainy afternoon, so thank you. I'm obviously Joe. Um, thank you, thank you. And I don't know what else. We'll answer your questions. Hi, I'm Richard Rhodes. I'm a psychiatrist. I work at the Crisis Response Center, the CRC, and i um, happy to be here to help uh, with the panel. Hi, I'm Judy Kowalik. I'm a family member of an almost 40-year-old son who has schizoaffective disorder and obsessive-compulsive disorder and he's in the public mental health system. And because of his illness, I became involved with NAMI's, the National Alliance of Mental Illness in Southern Arizona. And co I coordinate classes for family members of adults living with mental illness. I've been doing it for 19 years. And I look forward to helping anybody that might need help in education. I'm Sabrina Taylor. I'm the CIT training coordinator for the city of Phoenix, and I'm on the, on the uh, board of CIT International. And if anybody has any questions about CIT, um, we have the guidebook, and I've got um, flyers out at NAMI's table if you want to um, see where you can download it and get a copy. And I'm Jason Winsky. I'm a sergeant with the Tucson Police Department, and I am the CIT coordinator for our department as well. Thank you all. Thank you all for being here. Jennifer, I'm going to start with you. First of all, congratulations on all the accolades. Jury Award at South by Southwest, uh, award winner at the Boston International, streaming on HBO. Wonderful. What I think maybe the audience wants to know is how did you come to make this film? And how was the end product perhaps different than what you expected when you started? Uh, well, it was a three hour, a three hour. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm tired. Uh, a three-year uh, journey in terms of filming. So Joe and Ernie uh, very generously allowed me to follow them a lot. I spent a lot of time um, in their vehicle. And um, my crew was based in Austin, which was great. And they were terrific because I was trying to handle this with respect. I wanted to keep a distance. I didn't want to be kind of in the middle of what they were trying to achieve, which I think is... Um, a beautiful thing to behold, and I just wanted to share 
that story. Um, the re reason I came to this particular story, I, I, I think as a country, we're kind of in a crisis in this topic, around this topic. Um, and I wanted the film to be um, not a how-to manual, um, but I'm hoping it will inspire people to, to get it better in their community. But I wanted to highlight the shared humanity of this situation. Um, and because Joe was so honest about his story, we could see the humanity inside the police vehicle and outside. And um, my last film was about women in prison, and I followed five women in a maximum security prison in New York State who were trying to parent and stay connected to their children. Um, and the film was about parenting and mothering. Um, but what became painfully obvious to me when I was making that film was how many people behind bars are there in part because of their mental health challenges, either because of some early trauma or because there's just a million ways that our justice system intersects with mental health issues. And it was kind of just horrifying to me and very sad. And I, that film, I couldn't deal with that topic. It just didn't present itself with the women I was following. But so when the work of Ernie and Joe came to my attention and, and the other officers at the mental health unit in San Antonio, I just felt compelled to go out and see for myself, so I went out and visited. And I could only, there were 10 officers, I could really only follow two so that the audience can feel connected to those people. And I was blessed that it ended up being Ernie and Joe, because I think they tell a very complicated story in a, in a beautiful fashion. Thank you. Thank you. And it didn't, I didn't know what to expect, so the film is not particularly different, um, except for the fact that I, it became clear pretty quickly how much the uh, general crisis in terms of off police officer suicide needed to be part of the film. And when I first started shooting, I, I was aware of it, but it, it was clear to me that it, we, I had to include it. So that would be one thing that maybe I didn't expect going in. Thank you. Thank you for that. Officer Smaro, Joe, what were your feelings or thoughts when you agreed to do this? Uh, what concerns did you have and why did you say yes? Uh, <laughs> Excellent question. <laughs> no, so we, um, Ernie and I, when, when the, our unit started in 2008, we only worked nights. And so when we started a daylight unit, it was just Ernie and I. And so we got used to being thrusted into interviews, um, meeting with any of the media that wanted to talk about what we were doing. And so um, you saw at the end there, she kind of did this montage of different clips. So it was just part of what we were doing already. Uh, the big difference with this one is, as she said, um, she told us, you know, because she came out first without a camera just to meet with us. Um, um, did a did a ride along for a few days, uh, and but she said like no, I'm going to keep coming back, and I don't really know what it's going to look like, but I'm going to keep coming back, and she did a lot, um, <laughs> and honestly though it, it it for me it was it really was easy, and I don't just say this because Jen's here. But it was because it was Jen that I was so willing and uh, so comfortable doing what I was doing because I was going through a lot of things personally in my life. Um, I loved how she handled it. There was almost 300 hours of footage. And so I was very nervous about how she was going to condense it down to the 96 minutes you just saw. And I really didn't know because there was a lot of things that were filmed. 
And so I was really worried about what it was going to look like, but I trusted her from the beginning. Um, and so when I saw the final product, I was very, very excited about it. Uh, from as far as like the film goes, I wasn't excited how I look up there. Um, <laughs> Jesus. But, but, uh, but yeah, so Jen was, Jen was great to work with from, from start to finish, truly. Uh, she, she really did respect boundaries and space and there was times where I just was not feeling it or I didn't understand right and she would be like hey I need you to work this shift or this date at this time and I'm like but I don't want to but like and I couldn't see the big picture I just this isn't my mind I could not see what she envisioned um, until I finally did and then it really all made sense for me and so I'm just really really blessed to be a to be a piece of this thank you for the other two officers, I'm going to skip around a little bit because a lot of the questions are about like, well, what happens here? What do we have here? So one of the questions is, how do folks, how do officers in Tucson get trained, and um, how, how does that look here, and how is it perhaps different from what we saw in the film? Sure. So we have. Um pretty much identical, very similar training to what you saw um, in the film, and, and Sabrina does as well in Phoenix, and I'll let her talk about the CIT program. We have two signature trainings. One is mental health first aid, which is an eight-hour training that everyone in the academy gets. And then there's crisis intervention training, which is the 40-hour kind of gold standard law enforcement training, um, which I'm the coordinator for. And about 65% of all Tucson police officers are certified in crisis intervention. It's, uh, we do the Memphis model here, so it's voluntary. Uh, we usually have a waiting list for that training. But we really want those officers to be kind of specialized, again, like how you saw um, in the film, who have the aptitude and want to do um, this kind of work. The goal with CIT training, really, whether you have 100% or, or, or it's voluntary or whatever it is that you're doing, is that every shift, every hour of every day, you have officers that are working that are CIT trained that can respond um, to a call for service. So we are very heavily um, invested in the CIT training program. And I'll let Sabrina talk about Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's okay. Um, so, yes, Phoenix, his training looks very, very similar. Um, we've uh, trained, we train, and we train some more. Um, in 2015, we trained the entire department in an, in an eight-hour um, mental health type training. Um, we're doing it again with mental health first aid. We have 40 hours of training in our police academy, um, and it's it's really kind of a constant topic because it's a perishable skill so you have to kind of reintroduce it um, and again of course you know board of CIT International we hold fidelity to the Memphis model um, so our 40-hour CIT certification um, is voluntary uh, Phoenix officers actually have to test um, they have to submit a memo and a resume that clears their chain of command before um, they can enter the class. And it's really because there's a, a waiting list. Um, and we have officers from all departments. It's taught largely by our community partners. NAMI plays a huge role in teaching it for us. Um, and us as officers, we teach like a couple hours of it. But it's mostly um, our behavioral health partners, our people with lived experience that are, are teaching the, the topic um, to a class full of people who really want to be there. And then um, we have a huge department we've been training since 2001, and I'm at 20% because they keep retiring. <laughs> Uh, but I'm, I'm working to get there. One day we'll be we'll be a little bit higher. The the goal, of course, like Jason said, being that um, you know Memphis, Tennessee, 100% of the calls that their dispatch identifies as as having a CIT nexus, they get a CIT certified officer. Um, 
hard for me to figure out the numbers. I know we're at least at 50%. Hopefully, if we um, train a few more and hire a few more, we can get pretty close to that magic number. You are listening to a panel discussion following the Tucson screening of Ernie and Joe, Crisis Cops, a documentary about police responses to mental health calls. Speakers include producer and director Jennifer McShane and mental health peace officer Joe Smarrow. Local panelists include moderator Christina Rossetti, Dr. Richard Rhodes, chief psychiatrist of the Banner UMC Crisis Response Center, Judy Kowalik of the National Alliance on Mental Illness of Southern Arizona, or NAMI, Sabrina Taylor, the Phoenix Police Department's Crisis Intervention Team Coordinator, and Jason Winsky, Supervisor of the Tucson Police Department Mental Health Support Team. Judy, I'm going to ask you as a family member, how does this kind of policing make a difference for families uh, um, who are experiencing a, a mental health crisis? Well, I think um, it helps families not be afraid to call for help. <laughs> and, and I find it important because we educate a lot of family members that we tell them to ask for a CIT officer and to also state it's a mental health crisis call. And it, it helps me feel more secure for my son if, in fact, my son was had a lot of paranoia about things happening to him in the residence where he's living and somebody from the CIT or the mental health support team which is a outgrowth of the CIT um, came out and met with him and told him they were there to protect him and it just makes a big difference so he's not afraid of law enforcement and neither am I <laughs> Dr. Rhodes, uh, some folks in the audience might not know exactly what the CRC or Crisis Response Center is, and if you could maybe share a little bit about what happens there and then how this type of policing makes a difference in, in your facility. Sure. Um, the CRC is a 24-7 crisis facility um, which takes in um, patients or, or people from the community both by police transport and by walk-in. Um, folks are evaluated um, and then can stay overnight for 24 hours there. If needed, uh, if they need ongoing care, they could be referred on to a hospital. But the goal is to see if we can resolve the crisis in a short period um, by calling family, by uh, giving medication, by stabilizing the person at the center. Um, it's very important to us to have a close relationship with police. In fact, uh, that's one of our main goals is to make it easy for police officers to come in and quickly transfer the person to us and then be on their way back out into the community. Um, so we, we want it to be easier to take someone here than booking them in jail or, or taking them to a hospital. Um, in the film, it was mentioned that there was a 30-minute wait in the hospital. We're down to um, less than 10 minutes <laughs> in and out for the police officer. And that may not seem important, but to the officer, uh, we want that to be a quick um, quick transfer. So, I, was, I, just, I just wanted to dovetail on that. That, um, uh, that very much is what struck me while following. Um, it sounds like what would have seen the same thing in Tucson and Phoenix, but in, in San Antonio, there was such... Um, uh, collaborative, intentional collaboration between civic stakeholders. I think it's the only way 
we're going to move the needle at all. And Joe can speak to this probably more, more than I can, but um, you know, we think of the large cities that are trying to tackle CIT and other issues. Um, but most of the police departments in this country are what, 10 people? Is that what you, you yeah. Uh, average police department is about 10 person team. Um, so we, we're trying to kind of, that's why I'm excited about the film, kind of reaching a broader spectrum to figure out where communities that don't have the large time and resources, how we can kind of make this more possible for them. Because I think it, it has to be a community discussion, not just a law enforcement discussion. Jennifer, while you have the mic, uh, there's a question of how did you get permission to film the folks who were experiencing a, a crisis? Yeah, that was um, very important to me, that whole issue. Um, each one was done um, individually, case by case. So if uh, there was, if I felt that they were not capable of assigning, um, I blurred them or we didn't do it, or we, I didn't use it. Um, in the case of uh, Kendra, um, she quite beautifully and uh, unbelievably in some ways to me uh, encouraged me to use the dash cam, um, which was uh, very moving to me because I, you know, I felt it was critically important for the story you, to see that play out in kind of real time because from both sides, you know, she's expressing so much fear that so many people have um, and how the patient approach is, you really see it's unspool. Um, but the city of San Antonio, uh, said that they would release it only to her, which I actually applaud. I, I don't think they should be handing out your worst night to TMZ or whoever. Um, and so she got the footage, we discussed it, and in this kind of beautiful moment, she said, you know what, I really want you to use it. And I, I was a little taken aback how forceful she was about it. And she said, people just don't understand how this, how I, how someone like me ends up, how anybody ends up in that situation. And then she took it a step further and allowed me to keep following her. And at that point, she was very clear-headed, and I, I felt confident that she really understood uh, what she was um, agreeing to. So it was a case-by-case -case situation, um, and I also had a, a terrific uh, law professor kind of advising me, because I was very concerned. It's part of why I filmed from such a distance all the time, because I really didn't want to kind of jeopardize the help that they were getting from Ernie and Joe. So I hope that answers it. Thank you. We have a, a, a large initiative that the Level Foundation is involved as a funding partner called Help and Hope for Youth here in Southern Arizona, and it's quickly expanding to around the state. And one of the questions uh, for all three officers and um, probably Dr. Rhodes as well, are you seeing an increase in crisis calls for middle schools and high schools? Yes, so, and I don't think this is like universal to San Antonio or Texas. I mean, uh, suicide rates are up 30% over the last 10 years nationally. And a big part of that is the youth. Um, I, I think, you know, we just started, I just started teaching ACEs to our officers, which, um, you know, prior to 2019, we never had. And I think it's important that we understand that we're addressing uh, how childhood trauma affects adults and, and that we also understand trauma as a language. And if people, if kids are growing up in traumatic homes and broken homes and drug infested homes and, and uh, everything that ACEs is tracking, then they're essentially learning that language. And so it's not fair that we would have an expectation that just because they turn 18 and 19 and 20, 
money that suddenly they're just going to get it and buy a house and have a job and have a family and do well. And so we have to be more realistic with our expectations of why the problem is the problem. And I think, you know, for me, though, the issue is much bigger in the sense that I for me personally, I really think that there needs to be a massive reform in just public school education. Um, I think that there's such a push for like conditioning and standardized testing uh, and not there's, there's almost no real preparation for um, how to communicate, how to ask for help, how to fail, um, you know, mental health just in general. And so the suicide rates are continuing to rise amongst adolescents because there's there's just this fear and uncertainty and ignorance surrounding how to how to assess, how to intervene, how to communicate, how to listen. I mean, people just don't know how to listen. It's not something that we're taught. And so I think schools is a huge opportunity um, for teachers, for the kids. Um, and so like for us in San Antonio, two Two 40-hour schools a year, we're doing CCIT, so uh, Children's Crisis Intervention, and those schools are just for the school resource officers and the school administration and staff. And so it's a, it's a similar model, except we use adolescent role players uh, during our role plays, and a lot of the curriculum is more adolescent child-based instead of adult. Um, but yes, I think there's a huge need for addressing the uh, child and adolescent need for mental health. I can't believe you didn't mention Handle with Care. <laughs> so San Antonio has this amazing program called Handle with Care, where um, police officers, in the normal course of their duties, um, we encounter a lot of traumatic incidents, and sometimes kids are there. And it allows the officers to let the schools know something happened last night. Um, and we're, I'm trying to bring it to Phoenix. It's really difficult. Um, two years ago, it wouldn't have been possible. The schools um, would not have been on board. But um, given the current climate and um, CDC numbers and everybody waking up and realizing that this is a problem, um, our schools are actually doing a lot of trauma-informed training right now. Um, most of them have behavioral health partners. They're doing ACEs, Safe Talk, um, ASSIST training. Uh, and even our um, Child Protective Services and Arizona has funding for trauma-informed training and they're willing to go to schools and do this. So uh, we're working to get them on board um, and figure out a process where our officers can let these schools know uh, that there's something going on. And when I started looking into this, Phoenix has a ridiculous number of um, school districts and schools. Um, so it's going to take me a while to figure out how to get everybody together. Um, but it's an amazing program and we're hoping to bring it here. Yeah, I would just echo what, what you've already heard, that uh, we've seen a huge growth in the number of calls here in Tucson for this exact uh, population and this issue. And one thing that I think is helping uh, for sure as well is the mental health first aid that's getting into the schools as well for anyone that's um, interacting with children, for sure. Dr. Rhodes, did you want to chime in on this? Well, I was just going to mention the CRC does have a youth unit as well, so it's not only adults, um, so kids can come in. What we're finding is it's there are very few resources after that, um, especially if the child needs to be placed somewhere outside of the home. Um, we end up holding on to the kids because of lack of any any placement. So we're um, we're very much interested in that development of those types of services, but um, we we don't have a lot. Yeah, no, and you've you've heard it brought up, but again, I always say when we've traveled 
and done film festivals and we do these panels and I always tell people like if I was ever in charge of all the things which would be beautiful um, <laughs> but I think you know just like you take a test to get your driver's license in no matter what state you're in you have to be a certain age to do certain things I really think that it should be mental health first aid should be a standardized training for every adult once you become 18 if we're not going to do it in the schools because such a big um, gap or disconnect it really is that basic level of understanding and so so many people who are symptomatic of their illness get the police called on them because people don't identify or recognize what's what it is that's going on and so i just i think we need to do a better job kind of collectively as a nation embracing and understanding what just mental illness even means and that we all have mental health it's a spectrum right some people are well some people are ill but we're all on that spectrum and and so mental health first aid is just a great very basic introduction eight-hour class that everyone should do we'll have to leave it there you've been listening to a panel discussion following the tucson screening of ernie and joe crisis cups a documentary about police responses to mental health calls in San Antonio, Texas. The Tucson-based David and Laurel Lovell Foundation helped underwrite the production of the documentary and sponsored the local screening at the Loft Cinema. Ernie and Joe is currently streaming on HBO. The discussion includes remarks from producer and director Jennifer McShane and mental health peace officer Joe Smara. Local panelists include moderator Christina Rossetti, Dr. Richard Rhodes, chief psychiatrist of the Banner UMC Crisis Response Center, Judy Kowalik of the National Alliance on Mental Illness of Southern Arizona, or NAMI, Sabrina Taylor, the Phoenix Police Department Crisis Intervention Team Coordinator, and Jason Winsky, Supervisor of the Tucson Police Department Mental Health Support Team. This has been part one of a two-part series. Thank you for listening to 30 Minutes from 91.3 KXCI Tucson. I'm Amanda Schager. You can find this and all recent episodes on the 30-minute program page at kxci.org.